Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, <laughs> those bells. Uh, thanks. Yeah. Oh, great. Now the youth have them. Uh, excellent. Uh, okay. I want to start with a um, with a family meeting. Uh, so I'm just gonna have a seat here. Everyone can join me at the table. Uh, so uh, these last few months, we've had a, uh, an experiment running at South Run Baptist Church. Uh, if you didn't know about it, uh, we, we changed the time uh, from uh, 11 o'clock service to, well, what you're in right now, which is a 945 service. And uh, when I uh, announced it, I announced it as an experiment. And uh, if you know anything about experiments, uh, they, they only work well if you evaluate them, uh, and if you uh, try to decide if the experiment worked, or if there are uh, actually some lessons to be learned from the experiment. And so this morning, before we, I begin my sermon, and by the way, I never uh, use my, uh, my pulpit time quite like this, uh, but I think this is significant. Uh, this, was, uh, this is something we've not done before, uh, at least in my tenure here. And so I, I think it's actually appropriate for me to take a little bit of time out to just uh, kind of uh, address you um, uh, and say uh, exactly what happened. So if, if you recall, the experiment uh, was designed to do two things. There were, there were two goals we were aiming for. Uh, one, we were trying to create more space. Uh, in our Sunday school time, in our classrooms. And so we had uh, a, a Sunday school running at 8.30, and we have a Sunday school running at 11. Uh, and, and then we were also trying to increase and better the quality uh, of those educational experience, experiences uh, because uh, there was less um, uh, noise and less chaos and uh, a little more uh, space to work with. And, uh, and I'll say, like, it was a success on both of those accounts, actually. Uh, the, the experiment worked, uh, it created more space, and it created what I think was better learning environments. Uh, however, it did have some, uh, some unintended consequences, which experiments often have as well. And, uh, and so uh, I want to go over those with you and kind of explain what's happened here. But our council met, uh, not this past Saturday, not, not yesterday, but uh, the Saturday before, and we made a decision, uh, and we have decided to return to an 11 o'clock worship service and 9.45 uh, singular um, Sunday school hour, right? And I want to tell you why, and, and some of the things that we learned uh, along the way, um, as I've already said, we, we did have some successes, uh, and we created more space just like we wanted to, and in the future, if, if we need to create more space, we know that we can and we know how to. Um, we, we learned also uh, the, the, the children's uh, classes, were, I, I think, were the most successful of all uh, in talking to the teachers of the children uh, they uh, were able to do things that we hadn't done before. And so, for example, uh, you probably don't know this if you don't have children in those classes, but uh, what they would do is we would have our service like we're doing right now, and then afterward they would go downstairs and, and they'd all be on time, uh, first of all, uh, which seems to be uh, a problem 
uh, among uh, not the children, but uh, maybe some of the adults in here. Uh, <laughs> no names, uh, just, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, yeah, so they're all on time, but then they get to ask them all sorts of questions about the service, right? And so they asked them, like, what songs we sang uh, and what the children's sermon was about. They even asked questions about my sermon. And so it's a way to get the kids engaged with what they just experienced. Uh, and then the following weeks uh, and, and what we've learned uh, and what they have learned, uh, and a big thanks here to Beth and Paige, uh, they, uh, by engaging them in this way, they, they're paying attention, right, in the service. And, and it turns out they hear things and they learn things that, uh, that perhaps you don't even realize. And, uh, and so that's been one of the, the real successes of, of this. Um, and uh, then a couple other things is um, that we, um, uh, the, the change uh, uh, helped us get back into some old habits, right? COVID-19 has kind of turned everything on its head and and uh, maybe some of you uh, got out of the habit of like a 9.45 a.m. Uh, getting to church. And, and so by, by forcing you to be here for the service, uh, we, did, we, we, were, we managed to create some, some measure of routine uh, back in the congregational life of, of being here uh, at 9.45 and 11 o'clock. Um, some of you were even getting here at 8.30, and kudos to you for that. Um, and then lastly, um, perhaps uh, one of the most important things that we learned was uh, just how important our fellowship and connection is as a body. And this kind of gets at uh, maybe the unintended consequences and what we learned um, about the importance of, uh, well, what happens after a worship service. When I think about a worship service, and I do on a weekly basis, like what is the worship service going to look like? And uh, Cheryl uh, uh, helps me pick songs, or she, she really uh, picks the songs, and we, we kind of go over like what, a, what the whole service is going to look like. And one of the things I have never really considered before are the minutes after the worship service ends, right? And it turns out uh, those... 10 to 15 minutes, uh, maybe even more actually, uh, serve a really important purpose in our congregational life. And that is the service ends and you start to talk to each other and you start to make those connections that you haven't been able to make all week long. And the minutes following the service uh, uh, bear a pretty heavy burden uh, in the connectedness of our congregational life. And so what was uh, happening over the last few months, uh, at least in, and, and by the way, I should say, uh, the evaluation process essentially looked like me talking to uh, a lot of you just kind of in a one-on-one -on -one situation, trying to elicit feedback and, and find out like what you're, you've been experiencing over, over these last few months. Um, and, um, and so what started to happen was, well, the, the, this worship service finishes, and then 11 o'clock, 
Well, some people have to immediately go downstairs off to a Sunday school class. Some people have already been here since 8.30 and maybe are ready to go. There's a youth uh, Sunday school class that's meeting in this space, and so people uh, are feeling pushed uh, out of the sanctuary and into the narthex where they have to be quiet because we have a prayer class going on in one of the rooms uh, just off of the the narthex. And and so anyway, all of this is to say um, there, there was also a sense that we weren't in some sort of rhythm together. Whereas the 9.45 and then the 11 o'clock, that is the 9.45 Sunday school hour and the, the 11 o'clock worship service, we're all in sync. You know, we're all working together. We're all on the same clock. Um, and so, long story short, uh, 2022, uh, we as a church council uh, have determined that we wanna make it a year where we are strengthening and supporting our church body. And we believed that the time change that we affected uh, in uh, August, September area, uh, was not strengthening, supporting, maybe even attenuating some of those connections. Uh, and so uh, we are returning to uh, the former schedule. I need you to know that I do not consider this in any way a failure. This is not a failure. In fact, I would say very strongly to you, if there's something we as a church need to learn and to become, it's a church that's willing to take uh, some risks, to do some experiments, to try some new things, because uh, here, here's the real deal, right? COVID-19 has changed the landscape of uh, the church, probably across the globe, but certainly what I've been trying to pay attention to is the church in America. And uh, there's some disturbing trends about whether it's church attendance uh, or church engagement. uh, And and I'm not alone here uh, among many pastors who are concerned about the post-COVID church and what that's gonna look like. And it might look different, it will look different, I'm just gonna tell you, it will look different than the pre-COVID church. And so if we, Southern Baptist Church, are going to make it not just past COVID uh, or through COVID, but uh, if we're going to thrive post-COVID, we need to be willing to, on occasion, uh, do some experiments, try some things out, when it's not working as we hoped or thought, be willing to make some changes again. And I need, as a church, I I need you to know that the goal of all of this is that we be a body of Christ to the world that is around us and that we serve one another in a way that is honoring to God. So there we go. All of this will begin uh, the new year, January 2nd. We do not have a Sunday school class, but we do have a worship service, and we will have that at 11 o'clock. January 9th will begin a 945 uh, Sunday school class and a worship service uh, at 11 o'clock. I will take questions after the service. (laughs) (laughs) Family meeting adjourned. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we're grateful for the joy uh, that uh, is, is here among us, um, that you give us uh, through your Son, Jesus Christ. 
Lord, we desire as a church um, to be um, as, um, as God-honoring as possible. We are trying to follow you into what looks to be a, a hazy future. We don't know what's to come. And God, first and foremost, we put our faith in you, our trust in you. And Lord, we are seeking to walk your footsteps. Lord, help us to do that. I pray this morning as we prepare to hear your word that you indeed open our hearts, that uh, whatever we've walked in here with, that, that backpack full of things weighing us down, that we take it off and that we find your peace this morning, that you, the Prince of Peace, come and you reign in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, my home, uh, in some ways, is Kentucky. I don't know. Um, I, I, people ask me routinely, where are you from? And I don't know how to answer it because uh, Florida's not quite right now. I grew up there, spent uh, 17 years in Florida, right? Uh, but then I really spent years in the state of Kentucky, and my in-laws live there. My parents live there. I have siblings who live there. Uh, and yesterday, uh, there's a lot of news about the state of Kentucky. Uh, everybody whom I love and know uh, is just fine. But tornadoes have been uh, ravaging uh, western Kentucky and the surrounding states, right? And uh, so to get up this morning and to preach a, another sermon on peace, um, there's a certain irony in, in all of this. Uh, and, um, and I think... We all know that when we talk about things like hope or love or joy or peace, um, that we're expressing uh, this desire for something that is often missing. And so we're often in uh, intention with the lived reality that we experience. And so this morning, uh, I'm particularly attuned to to the tension that exists uh, in talking about peace in a world that often feels anything but peaceful. I want to begin uh, by reading our scripture from the New Testament this morning, uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14, before we begin. And it goes like this, and we've read it a couple times already. Uh, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for everyone. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
And here's this pronouncement of joy, and, and these angels, have, or these, uh, these shepherds of all people uh, get to hear it. And the angel who has already come to Mary, who has already come to Joseph, uh, who has already come to Zechariah, now shows up and this time addresses these shepherds and tells them exactly what's happening. He says, I bring good news. I bring the gospel, is what this word is. Great joy will be for all people. And then he says what it is. Today, in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior, that is Joshua, Yeshua, God saves, who is Christ the Lord. The King is born, is what he's saying. The angel is saying, There's a Christ, there's a Messiah, there is a king being born in Bethlehem this very day. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying of all places in a manger. It doesn't end there. The singular angel turns into a a host of angels. And if if one angel is scary, you can imagine that a host of angels must be extremely frightening. But perhaps in all the best ways. And suddenly there was, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host. And what are they doing They are praising God and they're saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. On earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. In the Old Testament, peace is a big word. It shows up all over the place. It's a word you've probably even heard in Hebrew, shalom. It's a greeting among Jewish uh, folks to this very day. If you go to Israel and you greet somebody on the street, you say shalom, right? Peace. And peace can mean lots of things in the Hebrew Bible. It can simply mean just uh, like wellness, general wellness. I, I am... I'm doing okay today. It can mean freedom from war. War is the opposite of peace. It can mean wholeness, right? So the opposite of being broken and shattered, think of a pot that is broken and shattered, is a a whole pot. It's It's a peaceful pot. It can mean security. It can mean physical and mental health. I am, again, well, both physically and mentally. And it even can be a verb to bring something to completion, the end of something, to complete something. And so peace has this big meaning that means lots of different things. Wholeness and completion and wellness and physical health, mental health, freedom from from anxiety, security and safety. It's saying that the threats of this world, they don't have any fangs. They mean nothing to me. 
It means finishing something and completing something. So the birth of Jesus, we get the angels shouting, peace on earth. And it's worth asking, what do you think they mean? (laughs) What do they mean by peace on earth? Those tornadoes in Kentucky are telling us another story this morning. Peace on earth. The Jesus narrative and and this birth that's taking place here, it's the middle of the story. And uh, the beginning of the story is important, and of course the end of the story is important as well. And I uh, had uh, us read the Old Testament uh, passage was was Genesis chapter 3, and the curse uh, of the serpent who, um, who lies to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And he tricks them and he seduces them and they fall. And God comes to the serpent and he says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here it is, I will put enmity. And here's the beginning of the opposite of peace, right? Enmity. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is the beginning of it all. This is the beginning of a world that is not shalom, a world that is broken, a world that does not have peace, a world that has things like tornadoes and sin, lies and murder, a world that is filled with hurt and pain, and it's the world that we inhabit on a regular basis. And in this world, we are told that there is peace on earth. That was the beginning of the story. In the end of the story, I could point to a few things. I could point us to Revelation 21 and 22, which I often do. But today, I want to point us actually to uh, Romans uh, chapter 16. And uh, I understand that the class downstairs at 8.30 uh, might have discussed the end of Romans And in 1620, we get this lovely passage. Romans 1620 says that the God of peace, this is indeed the God we need, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, right? A clear reference to that Genesis passage. That somehow the crushing of that serpent and what that serpent represents will indeed create peace, the peace we've all been waiting for. And so Jesus' birth sits in between these two things, the serpent and the crushing of the serpent. Glory to God in the highest, is what the angels say, and peace on earth. Jesus is born, of course, and then his life, as we read it in the Gospels, is filled with peacemaking. 
And so if, if peace is all of those things that I've already described from the Old Testament, if, if shalom is the freedom of war and wellness and wholeness and security and physical and mental health, etc., Jesus comes as a peacemaker doing miracles that make that kind of peace. And so when the blind see again, he is making peace in that moment. And when the lame walk and the dead come back to life, and the demonic are cast out, and mothers and fathers are reunited with their children, and the hungry are being fed, and the lepers are rejoining society. He is making peace in his life. He is a peacemaker in this way. In all of the brokenness that sits in our world that we all know a little too well, it's being made right in the person of Jesus and the things that he does. In Luke 5, there's this fascinating scene where, where Jesus is, you know, at odds, of course, with the religious leaders of his day, and they come talking to his disciples, and they say, why don't you all fast? And the answer is quite simple. It says, Jesus says, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And so while Jesus is here on the earth, indeed, peace is on earth. It's quite literally among us. And he is making peace in everything that he does. And there is celebration, and there is not mourning. There is, in fact, the opposite there are parties. How many parties does Jesus attend in the Gospels, right? He's a man of celebration, and his life is filled with it. He is making peace. Tension, right? There's still the tension. And Jesus knows this very well. He is in tune with it acutely. And so we get a passage like we get in John 16, verse 33, where he says, I have said all of these things to you that in me, in me, in me, he says, you may have peace. Because in the world, in the world there is tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world, he says. In, may, in me, you may have peace, but in the world, there is tribulation. However, take heart, for I have overcome the world. And here, we see the tension very clearly. And we see what, uh, the, the tension that exists even in the, the angel's proclamation very clearly, that peace is on earth. But we know also that the earth is filled with with tribulation. It's a world that needs to be overcome. And so the question for us this morning, I think, how do we overcome this? How do we live in a world that is anything but peaceful? How do we live in both peace and tribulation simultaneously? 
And I think at least one answer is the other half of the angel's proclamation. The angels don't just proclaim peace on earth. They actually don't even start there. They start with glory to God in the highest. And what they're doing in this moment is they're calling us to stop looking down here and to at least for a moment look up and to try to see the world that is from the vantage point of the God of the universe. He is in control, is what they're reminding us. He is in control, and he's just sent his son, the messenger of hope and peace and joy and love. And so whatever fears may be plaguing them and you this morning, God is in control. And whatever is stealing your peace this morning, God has just sent the Prince of Peace to this earth. Glory to God in the highest. If we can do this, if we can, if we can take our gaze from down here and look somewhere else, preferably to the glory that is God on high, I think we will have a different perspective with which to see the tribulation that is this world. If we can give glory to God in the highest and fear him alone, the result is in fact peace on earth. Not a peace that is without tribulation, not a peace that is without trial, it's not even a peace without warring, it's a peace in the midst of of all of that, a peace in the midst of all that the world can throw at us. Or as Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Or as Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, then who can be against us? In my preparation today, I found something in Scripture that I hadn't seen before. I always enjoy seeing something new. I was ruminating on this passage uh, about glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And somehow, I'm still not sure how, I came across another place in the Gospel of Luke. Same Gospel. Toward the end, Luke 19, where we get something very similar. At uh, this point, however, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem for the very last time. It's Palm Sunday now. And as he's entering in, uh, there's the throng of people who are greeting him as he comes in. And, and they say something very similar. In Luke 19.38, it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, which is, uh, is, a, is a quotation from Psalm 118, but, uh, but it's basically them saying, our king is here, and he's coming into Jerusalem, right? Which is where kings are supposed to be. He's coming into Jerusalem. But that's not the part that caught my attention. It's what came next. They then shout, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Which is kind of what the angels are saying, 
except a little different, right? Glory in the highest, the angels definitely say that part. But the angels say, peace on earth. And now, at the end of it all, we get peace in heaven. And maybe I'm making too much of this. I make a little too much of a lot of things, maybe. But I, I, I think it's actually important. Because I, I think what we see is the ending of Jesus' earthly ministry. And uh, that Jesus, who is indeed enjoying uh, the, uh, the bridegroom experience, right, where, where there are parties and there's rejoicing and there's joy because peace is among us on earth. Well, he's about to go into Jerusalem and we all know what's about to happen. And so the peace that is brought to earth for a time it doesn't necessarily remain in quite the same way when Jesus is fully present. The peace on earth that was enjoyed in Jesus' life and ministry was, was coming to a close. The wedding party that Jesus talked about, where there was no mourning or fasting, oh, it was coming to an end. And the evil forces of the world we're about to put the Prince of Peace to death on a cross. What they didn't know, however, was what Paul teaches us in Colossians chapter 1, 19 to 20. We know how the story ends. Paul says it this way, For in him, Jesus, was the fullness of God, and it was pleased to dwell in him. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. The reconciling word there is very much a shalom peace word, right? Reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And here it is, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so this cross that was intended to kill the Prince of Peace had actually quite the opposite effect on the whole of the world. And it is through the cross and the blood of Christ that peace, in its ultimate sense, can even happen. It's what we come to do this morning. What we come to celebrate and to remember when we take communion. In Genesis 3, we read that there was a curse on that serpent and there was a promise attached to it. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God says, but he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so in order to once and for all destroy this enmity and the strife and the war even the tornadoes and all the things that keep our peace at bay, this promise had to be fulfilled. And the serpent would indeed bruise his heel. But the serpent and all that it represents would also be destroyed in the death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus, that is, peace on earth himself, came as a baby. And he grew into a man 
who was the peacemaker that began to heal the world. And he died on a cross, reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This morning, if you are here and in need of the Prince of Peace, you have come to the right place. I encourage you to focus your eyes above and to sing with the angels glory to God in the highest. To situate yourself in the redemptive story of God, knowing that it's not quite finished yet, that there is still peace to come, and even in your times of trouble, take heart, because as Jesus himself says, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, you sent Jesus, your one and only Son, to this earth to reconcile all things on earth and in heaven to himself and to bring peace to all, to create that shalom that we all desire. And Lord, you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that we might have in our inner places the peace that can only come from you. And so God, as we walk through this world together, a world that is often marked by the opposite of peace, Lord, may we be beacons of peace walking through it, eyes fixed on you, the maker of all that is peaceful. And Lord, this morning, as we prepare to take communion, we are reminded of just what it cost to make that peace. And for that, we thank you and we praise you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.